All right. So if we look at last week and this week, what do the two stories have in common? Things don't turn out well for the enemies of God. Let's jump right in. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit. We unpacked that last week. What I attempted to do was to very briefly create a theology of sending. Sending is a huge theme in the Bible, and especially in the New Testament. Of course, you see it in the Old Testament. God sends Jonah to Nineveh. It's in a lot of places. God sends Moses back to his people. We see it everywhere. One of the last things that Jesus said to his disciples was, just as I have been sent, so I'm going to send you. And in last week's story, five of the leaders at the church in Antioch were together worshiping the Lord and praying, and the Holy Spirit spoke and said, I want you to separate or set apart Saul and Barnabas to the work that I have called them to. And in verse 3 of this chapter, it says that the church laid hands on them and prayed for them and fasted and sent them off. And then in verse 4, it says the Holy Spirit sent them off. And we saw that the Holy Spirit was working through the church, through God's gathered people, through the children of God, the family of God. The Holy Spirit is accomplishing the purpose of God as we obey God and do the things that God has given us to do. So God gave Saul and Barnabas a special task. And in the passage last week, it was not specific. The Holy Spirit said, set them apart for the work to which I have called them. And we don't get any more information than that. But you know what? Just because Luke didn't tell us, doesn't mean that they didn't know. When God leads, when God chooses particular people for a specific task, those people usually know what it is that God wants them to do because God makes it very, very clear to them. And that experience takes a variety of forms. God deals with each of us as individuals very, very differently and, and, and uniquely and some of us will have experiences like this in our lifetime where we just know God has something unique and specific for us, but many of us may never have this experience, and that's perfectly okay. There's already enough that we have in the Bible that tells us what to do, isn't there? So if you've never like, had like, this conviction that I need to do this, and it's something very specific, that's okay. You're not a second-class Christian. You're not any worse than someone who feels like they've had this sense of calling or direction in their life. The truth is, there's enough in the scripture that God has already called us to, that we can be faithful doing those things every single day, wherever we are. And so for them, for Saul and Barnabas, they had something special, they had something specific, and what they had to do on their journey is the same thing that all of us need to do every single day, and that is we obey God today. What is it that God wants me to do right now, 
today? That is the question that a Christian should be asking themselves every day, at all times of the day. What is it that God wants me to do right now? And if we ask ourselves that question, and and, and we are, are attentive to the Word of God, we're digging into it, if we're full of the Spirit of God, as we saw in this chap, as we saw in our passage today, I'll unpack that a bit more soon. But if we're full of the Spirit, if we're attentive to the Word of God, then we're going to know how to live our life right where we are at all times. And so, they were sent out by God Himself. What did they do? They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So the town of the city of Antioch was a huge city, third largest city in the Roman Empire. And a, a church had, had sprung up there, and, and the, the church was strong. The church was doing well. It had great leadership. The church was about 16 miles off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, at that very northeastern point of the Mediterranean. So they made about a 15-mile trip to the port city of Seleucia. They got on a boat, and they sailed across the Mediterranean to the island of Cyprus. They landed in a town called um, they landed in Salami. And like I said, that may have been a cousin to prosciutto or pepperoni, I'm not sure, but it was a port city on the east coast of the island of Cyprus. And in verse 3, after they arrived, they gave themselves to proclaiming the word of God. They had a message. And this message is central to their mission. This message is central to what the Holy Spirit would have them do. I want to say this message of the Word of God is central to the mission of the church today. Things have not changed. The Word of God is central to the mission of the church today. We are about the Word of God And we will not let something else become of greater importance than the Word of God. So when I say Word of God, when we read Word of God here in verse 5, what does that mean? Does it mean this book? Yes and no. Here's the problem. Here's why it can't only mean this book. Because a big chunk of this book had not even been written yet. They didn't have the New Testament. They had the Old Testament, but they didn't have the New Testament. When you see Word of God in our New Testament, the majority of the time it is referring to the message of Jesus Christ. Our written Word, our Bibles, Old Testament and New Testament, record the news about Jesus. Our our written word is inspired by God. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is perfect as it's been recorded and and handed down to us through 2,000 years now. But this book points us to Jesus Christ who is the greatest revealing of God that we've ever seen. Do you recall in John chapter 1, it's a passage we read a lot at Christmas time, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. See, that's not a book. That's a person. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You all, the word of God was present at creation. And John goes on to tell us, in the word of God, in Jesus, the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome the word of God. So right there in those first few verses of John's gospel, John is writing of the victory and the overcoming power of Jesus Christ, who is the word of God. And so Jesus is not a book, but he is a person. And he does reveal to us everything that we need to know and see about God through him. And the darkness has not overcome Jesus. And so in verse 5 of our passage, when it says they proclaim the word of God, they're proclaiming Jesus Christ, you all. He is central to their message. There's two other verses in Hebrews 4 that I want to read. And we often read these and, and we assume that it's talking about the scripture. And while some of these things are true about the scripture, y'all, Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 is about Jesus Christ, the living word of God. The Bible says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Y'all, Jesus Christ, who we are to proclaim, is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Okay, I use a knife often. That's just part of what I do. And y'all know what I'm talking about. It cuts. It divides. It goes down to joints and marrow. And the Word of God exposes what could not be seen prior to this. Prior to the cutting prior to a, 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 the piercing and division that takes place with a sword or with a knife. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say that no creature is hidden from his sight. Did you all know you can't hide from God? Y'all, I know folks that try to hide from God every single day, and they're really, really bad at it. <laughs> I've tried to hide from God, and it was... a awful losing game it was the worst year of my life okay and there's been other shorter seasons where i've tried to hide something from god it doesn't work he sees it all you all they are proclaiming jesus christ who sees all um verse 13 goes on to say no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and are exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account you all jesus christ is mighty and victorious in every way. You all, this is a message of hope. He has many enemies, and many of those enemies will repent and turn to him, but many of them do not. And for all of those that do not, Jesus Christ will conquer them. He will reign victorious over his enemies. And so they're taking this word, this message of Jesus, and they're proclaiming it in the synagogues. The synagogues are the local Jewish places where Jews come to worship every Saturday, which is their, the Sabbath. And we're going to get into that a bit more next week.
So that's a little bit of introduction. That's you know, kind of what's going on as we get to the conflict in our story. So verse 6, they travel through the whole island. They go as far as Paphos. Paphos, I don't know how to say it. Paphos is on the other side of the island. It's on the western side of the island. Most likely, they were ministering there for weeks and possibly months. Paphos is the capital city. And in that city, we meet two people. So the question was asked at our table about Bar-Jesus and Elimus. Are they the same person? The answer to that question is yes. The way Luke wrote this, it is a little bit confusing. I'll be the first to say that. I had to scratch my head on this earlier in the week. But we've got Bar-Jesus, which means the son of Jesus. His name is all, he has another name, which is also Elimus, and that word means magician. He was a Jewish man. Y'all, he was a false prophet. What's a false prophet do? False prophet tells you lies. He's a liar. And, and a false prophet is even worse because he's somehow posing as a messenger of the Almighty God. But here, it is clear. Luke just goes, as he's telling the story, just goes ahead and tells us all we need to know about this guy is he is not the real thing. Now, false prophets, we see them occasionally in the New Testament. We see them all over the place in the Old Testament. And there are strong words of condemnation for them as they pose and pretend to bring the message of God. But really, they're just deceitful workmen who are there with the message of Satan. So, Bar-Jesus and Limus, he was with the governor. Y'all, he was with the governor. The man of greatest authority in the nation. So the governor's name, or proconsul, it's kind of like a governor, similar to Herod in the role that Herod played in Judea. Not the same, but similar. He's a man of intelligence. He's a man of discernment. He's a man of understanding. You all, he's everything a ruler is supposed to be. Now, at this time, he's not a Christian, but that's going to happen by the time we get to verse 12. But he's a man of intelligence and discernment and understanding. And you all, he's got a bad man with him. And it sounds like the reason that Paul and Barnabas got to speak to him was because they saw the magician, the false prophet, first. And through their interaction with the evil prophet, they got to meet the governor. Now in the Bible, we see a lot of rulers, don't we? We see a lot of magicians. My favorite story about magic in the Bible is from Exodus. Moses and Aaron are before Pharaoh, and they're going back and forth. Moses is making his demands, let my people go so that they may go and worship me. And I, I, I can't remember the details. I did read it this week, but Moses tells Aaron to throw his staff down, and the staff turns into a serpent. Well, Pharaoh has his magicians and sorcerers also. And they're like, well, that ain't nothing special. Watch me. And they threw theirs down. They threw multiple staffs down. And each staff, I don't know how many, but there were more than one, each staff turned into a serpent. And then we see Aaron, the man of God, his staff that was now a serpent ate up all the other serpents. And those poor magicians, those poor pathetic sorcerers, didn't have a staff anymore. 
And so that's my favorite story in the Bible about rulers and magic. Um, But we also see that it is common for rulers in the Bible to lean on sorcerers. It is common for them to look to the stars for guidance. We see this particularly with King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel as, as he's leading and ruling Babylon. We've talked about Nebuchadnezzar a few times recently. But we also see this in King Saul, towards the, uh, uh, the first king of Israel. He was an ungodly man. He had rejected the true king. He rejected God as his king, and therefore he was unfit to serve. And he was in a pinch, and he went and conjured up a witch because he was looking for guidance. He didn't want to hear what God said, so he went to a false god. He went to a demon to hear what was being said. This magician with this governor is an evil man working with demonic spirits in an attempt to harm the people, to sway the governor so that the people will not be ruled well and so that they will be harmed. Y'all, I got every reason to believe that this type of thing is happening all over the world right now with rulers at so many different levels. It's probably harder to spot and find than it was back then. But I'm convinced that this is going on today. We get to verse 8. Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Y'all, here's opposition. All right? Listen, if you're doing what God wants you to do, you will certainly face opposition. Okay, you might not face it all the time, but you will certainly face it from time to time, at the very least, it's highly likely that you may face it more than from time to time. And you all, this is what false prophets have always done. They oppose the people of God. They oppose the truth. Do we have false prophets today? Are there evil people with evil messages trying to sway the crowd? Absolutely. You all, the goal of the false prophet is to turn people away from the faith. And in our day, they are all around us doing this. You all, there are false prophets in the church. You all know who my least favorite TV preachers are. I don't have to drop their names today. You already know who they are. False prophets. But false prophets are even closer than they are. You all, there's churches in this county that have false prophets leading them and running them every single week. And it is heartbreaking. There are churches that spend more time convincing the people that are there that they are okay, just as they are, and convincing them that they don't need to change. There are churches, there are leaders in churches that believe that people are good by nature, and that we just have to clean our act up a little bit. But the Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says that we are evil by nature and that God has to make us new and give us a new nature. We have none of our own righteousness, but God gives us the righteousness of Jesus. There's churches, there's false prophets where there's no talk of sin and repentance. And this amounts to an unclear and false gospel that leads the people listening to the conclusion that they're okay just the way they are. 
As long as they come to church each Sunday, as long as they tithe so that the church can stay open, as long as they, you know, don't do anything super duper bad, then they're okay. These false prophets stand in opposition to the truth of God and his word and those who will proclaim it. We also have false prophets in the culture. And y'all, they're loud, aren't they? (laughs) They are very, very loud. And many of them are well-dressed. Many of them are well-paid. They look really good on on that screen that we're looking at. They sound really good. You all, we live in a culture that is very religious. Everyone is worshiping something. Everyone has some, some, like, big motivating factor that drives their actions and causes them to do the things that they do. Just because God is not their God doesn't mean that they don't have a God. If you want to understand the culture around you today, then we have to understand that many people serve the God of self. What they want and what they think is right is supreme. There is a religion of autonomy where people think that they can do whatever they want and they seek to intimidate us when they know what we believe and when we proclaim the truth and they seek to silence us. They have their own morality. They determine what is right and wrong and they say that you can't tell me what's right and wrong I know what's right and wrong for me, and even though you have an idea of what's right and wrong for you, you cannot impose your idea of right and wrong onto me. That's what they say. That's what they think. And they they, they say that in an effort to silence us so that we don't bring them the word and the command of God. You all, it is the law of God that brings conviction of sin, that causes someone to see that the news of Jesus Christ is actually gospel, that the news of Jesus is good news. The law of God, the commands of God, as we proclaim what is true and what is really right and what is really wrong and what God really requires of us, as we proclaim that, it brings conviction to some so that they will see their need of a Savior and so that they will believe the gospel. But many in our culture are opposed to that. They don't want us telling them that they are wrong. They think two people can believe two different things and both of them be right, even though those two different things are opposed to one another. You all, this is a false message. This is false prophecy. This is the demons and the deception in our culture today. And our culture is seeking to turn away people from the truth, just like this evil magician was doing. So Elimus's goal was to turn the governor away from the faith. And I want you to note this. They hadn't been on their trip very long, have they? And they're facing incredible opposition. I want you all to know that just because there's opposition that doesn't mean that you're outside the will of God. Have you ever started on a journey and it got hard and you're like, "Mm, I can't do this. 
I think we've all done that with different things. And sometimes that's, you know, depending on what it is, that, that's an appropriate thing to do. But I've heard church people say this countless times in my life. Maybe God hasn't called us to this just because it's hard. But I recall our Savior saying that there will be difficulties, there will be trials, there will be persecution. You all don't expect things in this life to be easy. Don't expect things in this life to be easy. Don't expect to not face opposition. The church has many enemies, and there is much opposition out there. It doesn't stop Paul. It doesn't stop Barnabas. He moves forward in the power of God. He shuts up the devil. And so we get to verse 9. Saul, who was also called Paul. Why the name change? Some people teach that God changed, or that Jesus in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus changed Saul's name to Paul. That is not true. You don't find that anywhere in the Bible. Okay, at this point, in this chapter, actually later in this chapter, right around this time, Saul's ministry focus changes. He's been focusing on the Jews. Well, he's going to begin to start focusing on the Gentiles or the Roman world. And Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul, he was a Roman citizen, so he had a Roman name. Paul was his Roman name. So the Gentiles that he connected with, and Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he was a Gentile. He was not Jewish. But Luke decided to start referring to Paul, as, or to Saul, as Paul here at this period because of who it was that he was working with. After verse 9, Luke never refers to him as Paul again throughout the rest of the book of Acts. The only other time that we see Saul again is when Paul is telling the story of how he became a Christian. When he's telling the story about his life, when Jesus met him on that road to Damascus, Paul calls himself Saul. But other than that, he's known as Paul from here on out. And in all the different letters that Paul wrote later on in the New Testament, he always identified himself as Paul and not as Saul. So Paul encountered opposition. How do he handle it, y'all? Y'all, he looked right at the devil and spoke to him clearly. How did Paul, the man of God, face opposition? Y'all, he looked it straight in the eye. That doesn't come naturally to you, does it? It doesn't come naturally to me either. Y'all, this is what we got to do. Y'all, we got to look the devil straight in the eye. And we can do that when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't miss that part. Verse 9, he looked straight at him. Filled with the Holy Spirit. I've taught on this idea of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit extensively over the last year or two, really since we've been in the book of Acts. Jesus made a promise to his apostles, and he says, you will receive power when the Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness. That was a direct promise to the apostles, but it is, I believe, applicable to the entire church. 
in one way, one form, one fashion, or another, we, as the people of God, as we do the work of witnessing, proclaiming the word of God, and showing forth God's kingdom, we have power. And because you have power, you can look straight at the devil and tell him off. You can look straight at the false prophet and tell him off. You can look straight at the person who's mad at you because our church is hosting an abolition conference. And you can tell them the truth. In 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul writes, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. God, be filled with the Spirit. And that Spirit does not make us afraid. When you stand before people who oppose you, if you're afraid, it's because you're afraid. And you're drawing on your own strength. We must look to the Spirit. And in His power, we overcome that fear. We can be aware of the fear. We can hear the fear calling our name. But if we are full of the Holy Spirit, if we are open to Him being poured into us, then we acknowledge the fear and we say no to it. Just as an adulteress would call out to a man, come with me and I will satisfy you, that man can say no to her, can't he? So fear calls to you and says, no, you can't do that. No, you shouldn't do that. No, you just walk away and everything will be easier. You hear that message and you say no. God has given me his spirit and he is a spirit of power, of love, and a sound mind. He is the spirit that you were given when you believed in Jesus Christ. He is alive and well in you. Sometimes we try to stuff him in a corner. Sometimes we do it on purpose. Sometimes we don't realize it. But it's time to let him out of the cabinet and let him rule the whole house. Everything about you. May the Spirit of God empower and influence and direct and fulfill the purposes of God in you. We can look straight at the devil. We can speak to the false prophet. We can speak to the enemies of God, the truth of God, because God has given us a spirit of power, of love, and a sound mind. So moving on in verse 9, he looked intently at him. You all, this is our great need today. We must be a church that is not afraid to look the devil in the eye. Verse 10, look at what he said. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. You all, the Lord wants to do something with Sergius Paulus, the governor. But there is an enemy standing in the way. You all, God has a straight path, doesn't he? In doing the things that he wants to do in our world. And the enemies are trying to make the straight path crooked. It would be like getting your mail at the post office down here and someone says, Hey, how do you get to Sunbury? Well, you take 13 up, you'll go across the state line into Suffolk, and right before you get to Suffolk, you turn right and go south on 32, and then you do the little detour around the bridge that's being built, and you just follow 32 back across the state line into North Carolina until you get to Sunbury. That's absurd, right? 
No one in Gatesville would ever send somebody to Sunbury that way. This is what the false prophets are doing in our world. They're making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And if you're in there checking your P.O. box, you just push that person aside and say, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Sunbury's about 13 or 14 minutes down the road just that way. Instead of the hour up plus up to Suffolk and then back. You all, God wants to show himself victorious through his people. This situation of Paul blinding this man is very unique and rare. I am not recommending to anyone in here to go and curse someone in such a way that some type of immediate physical judgment comes upon them. This is only the second time that I can find, I spent a little bit of time looking, but like, has this type of thing happened before where a leader in the church or where any Christian spoke words and physical harm came to someone? And the only time I can find where something like that happened was in chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they sold a piece of property, they gave the proceeds of that as an offering, but they lied. And the, the, the husband uh, died as a result of what they did. And then the wife came in to see the Apostle Peter, and the Apostle Peter said, Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out. And she fell at his feet and breathed her last. She, with her husband, had lied to God and lied to the church. And Paul was like, You're about to drop dead. And then she dropped dead. I'm sorry, Peter said, You're about to drop dead. And then she dropped dead. Okay, this type of thing is not normal. But in this story, God struck him blind. The magician who set himself up to be a guide and deceived many, he can't even walk across the room now without help. Isn't that something? The guy who is trying to lead the most powerful official on the island now needs help to walk across the room. Did not our Lord say, he who exalts himself shall be humbled? Jesus said that a number of times. He who lifts himself up into a place of prominence will be humbled. And this was an incredibly humbling moment for this false teacher. So we get to verse 12. The proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Y'all, he saw the power of God. Did you know if you don't look the devil straight in the eye and speak the truth to him, you're less likely to see the power of God? If you don't look the devil straight in the eye, and by devil I mean the false prophets in our culture and any of the enemies of God that are out there, and he has many. If you don't look them straight in the eye, we're not going to see God do incredible things. People who don't go into battle don't experience the victory in battle, do they? Churches that just try to keep everything nice and tidy on the inside and never step out that door to do anything worth doing will not experience the power of God and the victorious nature of the warfare that we have been thrust into in his kingdom. This astonishment that the governor had. I believe this is something that is missing in our world today. 
The unbelieving world looks at us and sees nothing amazing, do they not? Y'all, we need to be done with a boring faith. We need to be done with a boring church. We need to be done with a church and a faith that is unengaged. We must not be standing still. We must not be retreating. We must be moving forward. So you, my brother, my sister, you, child of God, do you know who you are? You are a child of the King. And the King has appointed His children to serve in a war zone. We live in a wicked world, and He sends us. As Jesus told his disciples before he left, just as I have been sent, so I send you. I want you to know, as a child of the king, you have been sent. You are the light of the world. You have been sent to let your light shine before others so that others would see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You have been sent into this world to be one who loves God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. You have been sent into this world to love your neighbor as yourself. You have been sent in this world to be faithful to your family, to be a faithful child, to be a faithful young man, young woman, to be a faithful dad, faithful husband, a faithful mother, a faithful wife, a faithful grandfather faithful grandmother, a faithful church member. God has called us to be faithful where he has placed us. He has sent us into this world to be faithful. He has sent us into this world to glorify him. As Paul would go on later to write in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. He has sent us to play a part in fulfilling one of the final commands of Jesus, to go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that our Lord has commanded. We have been sent to do these things and so much more. We will face opposition. But this must not deter us, and we will drink deep of the God's Holy Spirit. And it is my prayer that there would not be another generation in Gates County that grows up thinking that the church doesn't have a role to play in society. I pray that by God's Spirit that the Lord would astonish our community, and I pray that many would believe the gospel that Jesus Christ was sent by his Father earth, that he was born of a virgin, that he came into this world as a human, just, he was just as human as you, as I, you and I are, and that he lived a life that was perfect in every way, yet doing many of the same things that we did every single day. And that this Jesus, he died and he rose again. And after he rose again, he ascended to the Father He is sitting at the right hand of God currently, and he is awaiting 
the time when his father says, it's time to go. And when his father says that, he is going to return. You all, the church is not going to lose the war because our king is victorious. Let us not be a defeated people. Let us not be afraid. But let us go forward facing the enemy head on and let us watch the power of God work wonders in our midst. With that being said, let's enter into a time of prayer. Let's respond. God God speaks to us in his word and we hear it and receive it and then our response in worship takes many different forms and one of those forms is prayer. If you have your prayer guide with you, grab it now and, and I'm encouraging us to bring that regularly. But let's have about a minute of silence and cry out to God right where you are and then I will lead us after that.